For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, uh, I guess, Tuesday night. And, yeah, Tuesday night. And uh, I don't have anybody yet for the Haftorah, so I'm waiting to see if somebody steps forward to sponsor that. But I do have somebody, um, good friend who's going to sponsor what we're going to talk about tonight, which is something a little different, a little off the track, and that's uh, Dr. Michael Elman, uh, who was actually a good... Uh, who helped me a lot on the recent trip that I made to Israel that I myself never went on. But uh, he was uh, very helpful in arranging certain things over there. Um, and this is, he's sponsoring this in memory of his uh, father, uh, who's Yehuda ben Yechiel Michal, who's, uh, the artist is later in the year, but he's from Minsk. So, um, my father's from Minsk, born in 1900. His father's from Minsk, born in 1906. Uh, my father left Minsk and went to Lithuania in time of Russian Revolution. He went to America. He made a better choice. <laughs> he made a better choice. He ducked the Holocaust. My father did not. So uh, thank you very much. And the Minskers got to stick together. Uh, all kidding aside, Minsk was a city, I haven't spoken about that unusually rich uh, Jewish culture going back many centuries and it's hard to explain uh, the richness of it which is why um, the thought came to my mind uh, today sort of on a whim I got two uh, emails one from Seth Marshall and one from Ari Elbaum and they both had to do with Chaim Grotta which apparently in the news I haven't followed it Seth Marshall sent me something to the effect that Chaim Grotta, I'll talk about in a second, uh, all of his stuff is going to be on digital, now put up by Evo in New York, so it'll be uh, uh, available online for people when any of that kind of stuff. And the other one was about some new translation from Professor Fishman, I think, from the JTS, um, and from the Jewish Review of Books, which I don't have on me, uh, about, again, some new thing, the new translations, they're publishing them, Chaim Grotta's works. So I figured, you know, what the heck, I want to say a few words about this uh, very famous Yiddish writer, even though it's not the type I usually talk about, but I want to put my spin on it. I'm not going to do a whole biography, but rather, as they say, an interpretation. So uh, so let me get down to business. <clears throat> the uh, It's funny that all these things came together, and I just went on this, uh, on this uh, digital, I guess it must be, and I heard a uh, speech he gave on Yiddish, extremely rich Yiddish, about how they falsified the Chazanish in the history books and this and that and the other. So, who were we talking about? We are talking about Chaim Grada, who was a very uh, important Yiddish novelist and poet in the second half of the 20th century. In the, in the 20th century. Uh, but usually I don't talk about Yiddish literature so much. Uh, it's not for a podcast audience necessarily. And most of these writers ain't got no time for. But if you're interested in the subject of Yiddish literature and you want to know it in English, if you're interested in that subject, um, there's a golden oldie that I read when it, many, many, many years ago. The book came out five decades ago from Professor Charles Madison, I think his name was. And it was all about Yiddish literature introducing it in like a survey for the American reader. Charles Madison Yiddish Literature, its scope of major writers. And uh, it's very good for someone like myself, everybody else, if you're interested in getting an overview of the literature itself. Um, I just had this conversation with Jonathan Marvin, who drove me to Schultz today. And, you know, he represents the regular American type of Jew. He's like, who gives a darn for Yiddish literature? Which I understand. I get that. Uh, but our hero that we're talking about today, Chaim Grad, is a well, is is an exception in my opinion, but maybe I'm speaking for myself. Now, uh, who are we talking about? We're talking about uh, uh, somebody who was born in Vilna, and in in 1910, and died in New York in 1982. So he lived to be 72 years old, and uh, obviously that means he went through the war, as we shall see. 
and he's what you call a Shono Pirish. Uh, the difference between him and most Yiddish writers is that most of them uh, knew the religious world kind of externally and were turned off by yeshivas and things of this nature, which I understand, and rabbis and so forth. Uh, and therefore write about it, at least in my personal opinion, a kind of, uh, in, in, in a fashion, you can tell sort of a caricature. By contrast, our hero, Chaim Grada, uh, who was an orphan at a young age, remember he was born in 1910, so that means he's 30 when, the, when Hitler shows up, Stalin and Hitler. So in the first 30 years of his life, he had a very unusual profile, because his father was a Moscow, died when he was young. His mother was very from. He has a whole book about his mother, the Mama Shabbos and Mother's Sabbath Days, which is a wonderful novel. And, uh, and you know, she really wanted to grow up to be a Tamacharam. He had these real from women back once upon a time in Vilna. And she sold like apples, you know, she lived a poverty life. And he ended up going to these Navardic type yeshivas. I'm talking about now in the 1920s and early 30s. Uh, and he went through the whole Navardic process in the 1920s and 30s. In a certain way, Navardic had a kind of a golden era, by which I mean, many people don't know this, by which I mean that they did Uforatza Yomo Kemavitz Avonim Menegbo, that the uh, Navardic yeshiva system, was it called Beis Yosef or something, uh, made many branches all over the Republic of Poland and Lithuania, particularly in Poland. So Poland in the 1920s and 30s had three and a quarter million Jews as gigantic population. And two groups uh, tried to missionize and set up not a school or two, but a network of schools all across Poland. One was Novartik and one was Lubavitch, as, as far as I'm aware. The truth is there were a couple others, but these are very well known. And Novartik, this after Alter and Novartik died in 1920, so his students were super... Stark, I think many of you know that, um, maybe too Stark, whatever, and they would go anywhere to a town in Poland, and Poland at that time means Galicia, it means uh, Western Ukraine, Western Belarus, uh, the parts that were ruled by the Republic of Poland, uh, Western, uh, Eastern uh, Lithuania, I don't want to confuse you, and they would go into a town and say, we're making yeshiva right here and now, if you don't like it, lump it. And they would fadreus a cup so much that you'd end up agreeing to make a cheder or a yeshiva. But Navardic <laughs> also was into the super musser in the sense of being extreme and criticizing each other. And, you know, you're just doing this because you're trying to show off. No, I'm not. And the fact that you say you're not trying to show off, that alone, that alone is, is, is showing off. You know, that whole world of that stuff in which you end up with the famous joke that one Navardic says to the other, it's been garnished. The other guy says, who are you to claim to be garnished? You know, <laughs> you see? Well, that's who Chaim Grada grew up in these schools. It's clear there was a turn-off to him. Uh, and then, I don't know exactly how it happened. He was back in Vilna in his hometown. And he, and he went to school, like a public school, but he also learned, like in the afternoon, with the Chazanesh himself. So you see, it's, it's very, that's not your typical Yiddish writer. He learned Chavrusa somehow or other with the Chazonish in a certain base medrash and so forth and so on. And in spite of everything I just said, when he turns around 20 years old, thereabouts, uh, Shano Pirish, he abandons uh, from Judaism. And being a super Litvak, because Vilna in this era was a city with a lot of poverty, all the rest of it was super Litvish culture. You know, um, and when they have super litvish culture in the first part of the 20th century, it expressed itself in the entire gamut of Jewish possibilities, which is just interesting. You had flourishing all kind of groups that strongly disagree with each other. It's from extreme right to extreme left. On the extreme left, you had the Jewish communists, the Jewish socialists, uh, Bundists. Uh, who were flourishing. They had clubs, and they had associations, and they had their own newspapers, and they had their own day schools, and their own literature, 
And then, uh, you know, then you have uh, groups to the right of that, your bourgeois Zionists and your socialist Zionists, and they have the assimilationists. And then on the right, you have the Mizrahi and then the Aguda, and then the people who are beyond the Aguda. And everybody was flourishing in their own cultural way. It's really a very, very interesting uh, period in history, especially Vilna was part of Poland, not part of Lithuania, where things were a little bit more mild. And the part of Poland where Vilna was, the ideological differences were extreme. This is where they had that election, for example, where they voted out Chaim Meiser, you know, in the late 1920s and things like that. And therefore, our hero is living through a very uh, tempestuous time. And uh, eventually, uh, like he grows up in the yeshivish segment, but he gets disillusioned with it. Maybe never liked him first place. It's not clear to me. And he sees through what he considers his, his Bolognian weaknesses. Although he does acknowledge, and he had to, that there were sincere people in the Shi world also. And the Chazanish, he venerated. He venerated. Um, but he instead throws himself into Yiddishism. Isn't that interesting? And that's what, what I want to talk about tonight because he basically picked the wrong train in the 20th century, but he would not see it that way. It's very interesting to me. Uh, he lives in Vilna. One of the groups they have over there is secular Yiddish culture. There are people who believed that the future of the Jewish people in Europe may lie in the development and cultivation of a very uh, intellectual and... Uh, culturally active uh, Yiddish uh, culture, which will express itself in literature, in clubs, in all kinds of intellectual and other activities. And you can have a full Jewish life just talking Yiddish. I, your Michal Shabbos, you trade all the rest of it. We don't need that garbage. The Yiddish language itself will be the vehicle of how Jews will express themselves. So in other words, I'm talking about atheists. And our hero switched from being a Talmud, I mean, yeah, Talmud, a Chavrusa, I might say, of the Chazanish, when the Chazanish was younger. Uh, to, to Just think about that. And I'll say again, he has a positive relationship with the Chazanish, which you can see in some of his books, and with Mrs. Chazanish also, by the way. But um, he he loses it, and he loses his faith, and being a Litvak, it's halonu ato litzarenu. Either you believe or you don't believe. If you don't believe, you don't believe. Okay? So if you don't believe in God, then everything else is zil, zil gomor, you know? Like, the rest of the culture is, is is a waste of time, all this gomor stuff. So he knew how to learn, but he wasn't interested in it. And instead, he throws himself into writing Yiddish poetry and stuff like that. Uh which there was an active uh, community of those types in Vilna and similar places. Uh, again, it's hard for me to get across to people. This is Europe in the 20s and 30s, before Hitler. What an active Jewish life and, th and thriving and throbbing culture there was all throughout Eastern Europe, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, those kind of places, which had... Altogether, about three and a half million more than that Jews. That's a lot of people, okay? And they're all talking Yiddish, or not all, but many. And they're all having these newspapers, all in Yiddish. And, you know, the Yiddish language is a remarkable vehicle. And these guys want to be the new secular, um, what should I say, uh, avant-garde artists of language and poetry. And that's the world he chose. So he dropped the yeshiva world very consciously, and he dropped the religious world very consciously, and instead he went for the Yiddish world. Uh, sure, his mother was not too happy about that, and he sort of writes about that in some of his books, but that's what he picked, and for five, six years, he had a grand old time. Uh, here we're talking about the people, as I say before, who took Yiddish very seriously, Uh there were such types. And as a whole, I don't want to go into all the details about it. 
But suffice it to say that the Yivo was located in Vilna, and that was supposed to be the cultural base amygdus for the Yiddishists, where they will assemble all the uh, records and archives so you can have like a central place where you can study <coughs> every aspect of Jewish culture and Yiddish culture, that sort of thing. And this will be a substitute for the yeshiva stuff. This will be a substitute for the pursuit and cultivation of rabbinic literature and certainly the rabbinic lifestyle. In order to go for this, you have to be pretty boldly atheistical. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. And the Litvish are really bad at this or good at this, however you want to do it. I've seen this in my lifetime. You show me people who are Polish, Hasidish, Galtzianers, even when they're not from, they still have, you know, a piece of them that's from, and a collector for yeshiva can go and pull at the heartstrings and get money out of them. If you get somebody who's a Litvak, uh, so it's either Halonoat or Litzarenu. Either he's from, with everything that goes with that, uh, Mizrahi or Agoda, or else he ain't from at all, and ain't got no time for this, he's not going to support a yeshiva or give money to that, because the whole thing's a waste of time. Uh, it's It's interesting... You know how nationalities express themselves, national ethnicities express themselves. Um, I'm reminded of a story I'm sure I must have told another time that I heard from Rabbi Rottenberg. Uh, my Rebbe needs a uh, he needs a full shlema, and he said, "Where well, Rabbi Sternhill used to be a, uh, a Hasidic uh, overlander rov, not overlander underlander rov in Baltimore, very great Talmud Chacham. He wrote uh, he had a small shul." And he wrote Shalos and Shubas and all that. So he was, you know, a very big deal. And uh, this Rabbi Sternhill uh, was originally from Munkach. I think, if I'm not mistaken, he may have been a die-in there even. So he was a very big Tamachacham. And he bought into the whole Munkach business. And then came the Holocaust. And when the war was over, the story is that he went you know, to recover from the war or something like that in northern Italy. And he runs across an old, you know, Chavrusavis from 10, 20 years ago, who now is completely fried. And, you know, living the lifestyle of a completely non-religious person. Probably had two girls on their two arms in Italy. And, you know, listen, they just went through Hitler. And they knew each other, so they immediately embraced. Schmerl, Beryl, this, that, and the other. And even though it's clear that They'd gone in two different directions, but the initial encounter was one of, you know, you survived the Holocaust, and I survived the Holocaust. That, that's something we have in common. And he went, took him to a coffee house or something like that, and after all the pleasantries, at one point, Rabbi Sterno, like kind of broke down, and he says, you know, Shmel, what's the commandment, Like, what happened to you? You used to be a firm guy with me, Shiva. You know, what happened to you? And the other guy says to him, he says, Herzachan, listen to me. Neither of us is going to Olam Haba. Why not? He said, look, I'm not going to Olam Haba because the Gila Rai I mean, I've totally abandoned Yiddishkeit. And you're not going to Olam Haba. Yeah, why not? It doesn't exist. Because <laughs> the guy was a, a consistent atheist. You get it? There is no Olam Haba. There is no nothing. So that's the kind of guy that kind of grata uh, turned out to be. So you had these types in Eastern Europe in which they had the background and they had been immersed for a while in the deep pool of extremely uh, lumdish and spiritual uh, Yiddishkeit, but that's, they didn't feel comfortable with it. They did not feel comfortable with it and they pursued another direction. So for five years in the 30s or six years, you know, let's say until the, the war came, uh, he was a well-known poet, and the Jews are very cultural, so you could publish poetry and give speeches about it and attend conferences and all that kind of stuff. You can have a full Jewish life of this Yiddishist, atheist thing, if that's what you want, and have nothing to do with the from side. Of course, then came World War II. And by the way, he married a girl from the same background. She was the daughter of a row, but she wasn't interested anymore in Yiddishkeit. There were plenty of people like that. Okay, doesn't matter what family you grew up in. They, you can always view the from world. This is true even today. 
as warm and cuddly or else as stifling. <clears throat> you understand? Because the from community <clears throat> puts its arms around you and it's embrace, but then the embrace is confining. So if you want to do this or dress this way or do that way, can't do it. So somebody will say, it's fine with me. The other person says, I can't breathe. It's stifling. You see? So that's obviously who he and his wife were. And then, of course, came World War II, which originally the Soviets took over Vilna, and then Hitler in July of 41. So our hero uh, figured that the Germans in World War II will be like the Germans in World War I. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Germans in World War I also conquered <laughs> Vilna. But they treated the Jews okay. The only thing is, they forced, this under the Kaiser, they forced a lot of Jews to do um, labor for the army, forced labor, things like that. You know, they gave them food and all that, but, you know, it, they made life very uncomfortable. But the women, they left alone. And Chaim Grada, even though he considers himself a man of the world, these guys were clueless about who Hitler was. So were a lot of Jews in Lithuania. It's really remarkable. They, you know, they were like ostriches. They, you know, they didn't want to know. And so he ran away to Russia, to Stalin. And he left his mother and his wife behind. And of course, they were all killed. And he spent the war as a Polish refugee, a Lithuanian refugee, inside Stalin's Russia. In other words, he didn't fight in the war. He was in the place Tashkent and those kind of places where a lot of refugees went. And... Then he moved back to Moscow for a while, but by the time the war is over, so he's one person from Vilna who survived only because he wasn't in Vilna during the Holocaust itself. Otherwise, he would have been shot. Now, you know, the, if you go to Vilna today, you see the mass graves and punnery and places like that. I think everybody knows that. You know, in, in those parts of the world, they killed everybody in 1941. They called the Holocaust by bullets. The Hitler had these shooter squads Dinsatz uh, uh, grouping that they uh, they they shot um, in Lithuania and those kind of places that part of the world they they shot in mass graves one and a half million Jews you know what I said one point five million Jews so if you tell me there were six million Jews or as they always say more like five and a half million so one and a half of the five and a half million were shot between June and December of forty one then they later Germans later on went into you know, uh, uh, extermination camps where they did industrial slaughter. So our hero survived the war, the way I said, and obviously he was all shaken up. He returns to Vilna. It's a ghost town. And, you know, his mother and his wife, everybody perished. He married the cellar lady that he met in, in Soviet Union and eventually moves to America in 1948. Uh, from 1948, he, so let me put it this way. So what did you do for a living? He's not a doctor. He's not a lawyer. What do you do for a living? I'm a Yiddish poet. I'm a Yiddish intellectual. What the heck is that in, in America of 1948 and afterwards? Because he lived for another 35 years or so, from 48 to uh, 82, okay? 34 years. So what do you do if, you know, that's your, your living, uh, so the answer is life and this is the part that always uh, you know, amuses me even though I, I shouldn't do it as schadenfreude uh, life and the train of history didn't turn out the way he imagined when he broke away from Yiddishkeit uh, I mean religion in the middle 30s he he thought as, as they all did life in Eastern Europe will go on for another 100 years for another two, three, four, five hundred years. They were completely unaware that they have a few years left and everybody gets exterminated. We all know the story of the Jews of Eastern Europe. They were all killed. <clears throat> the entire culture I just described, the communists, the Bundists, the socialists, the B'nai Akiva, the, the, the Aguda, the Navardiga, they're all killed. You said they're all killed by Hitler in, in vast numbers. Uh... This is Yeduah. And so, if you had plans, culturally, to operate within a certain milieu, but then, history so organized things that the whole milieu ceased to exist. So then, what the heck do you do? 
Uh, well, if it's the late 40s and the 50s and 60s, the only thing you can do, if you're really that kind of intellectual person I'm talking about, is try to live off the Yiddish. So what does that mean? Uh, there were still plenty of Jews in America and Canada and Argentina, a place like that, who still were Yiddish-speaking. They had moved to America and these other places 10, 20, 30 years earlier. So these would be people who I would say, generally speaking, would be middle-aged, young, middle-aged, whatever. But you know and I know none of their children in this country or anywhere else is going to grow up speaking Yiddish or giving a darn about it. The Yiddish culture, per se, like, who cares? Uh, that's why Yiddishism tastes like, like a dinosaur, you know. Uh, the whole culture ceased to exist. So whereas when he was growing up, like I say, by the time he was 20, he probably figured the from world's going down the tubes because it's not viable. But the Yiddish one will be flourishing, um, you know, to his shock. It went the other way around. That the same Rosh Hashivas who identify with the stifling kind of business, some made to America and Israel and built the yeshivas and kind of revived uh, mutatis mutandis, you know, it's not exactly the same thing as it was in Europe, but the same kind of schools and, and the same kind of Yiddishkeit um, they had in Eastern Europe. Uh, again, mutatis mutandis. But the Yiddish it ceased to exist. So in 1948, 1958, 1968, you can go around and give talks and lectures to, uh, you know, this group of Yiddish-speaking Jews and that group of Yiddish-speaking Jews. But guess what? Just as you get older, they get older also. There are no young people that show up to these things. Uh, now, when there was a lot of them, okay. But as time goes on, you understand, uh, it's going to be less and less of them. Uh, you know, you, you go to Argentina, you give a speech in 1949, but you come back in 1959, a lot of the people died. Uh, and the young ones aren't, aren't interested in this anymore. After the war, he took up publishing novels for the Yiddish newspapers. Um, because you still did have, I would say, for 25 years after the war, um, but only that long, like for 1949-45. Let me be generous on this. 45 to 75, that's actually too long. Uh, the era of the Yiddish newspaper. I grew up with that. My father used to get a daily newspaper here in Baltimore, Maryland, out of New York, uh, the Morgan Journal, the Tug Morgan Journal. And that was, quote-unquote, the Frum paper, although it wasn't Frum. It was just friendly to religious causes. Uh, and, you know, all the Rebbies and TA, they get it that was like part of what you do. In other words, they used to get American papers, that's true, yes, like the Baltimore Sun in Baltimore, or the New York Times in New York. But you also got, you know, the Yiddish press, which came out daily. So every day, it came in the mail in my house, a newspaper in Yiddish. Um, so you notice he's subscribed. Not my mother, but my father. And he used to read it from cover to cover. And there were basically two. One was for the religious, and one was for the, for the atheists and the non-religious. The religious one was the Morgan Journal, and the other one, the non-religious, were the forwards. You've heard of that. So our hero is going to write for the forwards. <laughs> uh, because he's a Shano Pirish. He abandoned, he gave up on the from stuff. He's a genuine, honest-to-goodness atheist. If you really think that there's nothing out there, there are consequences to that life. You get it? I think many of us... I hope I didn't skip anything. But, you know, so the mortgage journal was for the religious and those types, the traditional, and the forwards were more for like the socialists and those types who didn't believe in religion. And I'll say it again. it's I think it's hard for people, uh, such as listening podcasts now, to imagine people who, mamish don't believe in God, you know? <laughs> it's the difference between believing and not being observant. They don't believe in, and, and are prepared to live with the consequences of that. It's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, in those years, certainly in the in the uh, late 40s, <coughs> the 50s and the 60s, 
this stuff still flourished, although the readership was getting older and older, and eventually all these uh, papers went out of business because the readership died out. So the Yiddish literary public, you know, ceased to exist. So here you're getting hit by megatrends, um, but you don't interpret it in a religious way if you're him. Notice the whole Vilna got wiped out, and the whole Yiddish of Eastern Europe got wiped out. And when you're coming to America, it's, it's dying a natural death. Uh, so you're on the wrong side of history because Jewish he was and thoroughly wrapped in Judaism and Jewish culture he was. But his, you wanted his brand of Jewish culture, which was not viable. But nevertheless, in spite of what I just said, um, he started publishing novels. And uh, although he started as a poet, but mainly he published these novels about life in the old country, especially in Vilna, especially semi-autobiographical. Uh, and these uh, turn out to be amazing. Um, and everybody who knows anything about Yiddish literature and all knows that uh, Chaim Grada is, uh, if you read his stuff, especially if you come from a, a from background or you, especially yeshiva background, uh, you completely understand and identify with the characters, even though he molds it in a very artistic kind of way. And um, he has these short novels and these long novels, and they're remarkable because he knew all these guys personally. I'll say it again. He knew Chaim Eiser personally. He knew he lived in Vilna. He knew the Chazanish intimately. He knew the yeshiva world of Eastern Europe uh, intimately. He spent many years there in the Nevada-type places. And he knows the other yeshivas as well. And, you know, he knows the rabbinical world. Uh, and he can, even though he doesn't, you know, uh, buy into it. And as an artist, as a novelist, he can paint these things in amazing ways. And he uses Gemara talk, the, the high-class Yiddish, which is called Beismeterish Yiddish, in which he uses a lot of terms from rabbinical literature and things like this which the other Yiddish writers didn't do because they were kind of alienated from it and they're more secularized without having undergone an earlier period of religionized. And um, and even some who did go through an earlier period of religionized, but what kind of, you know, their writing is really like junk, in my opinion, uh, even though I have friends who shoot me for saying that. Uh, but Heimgrad is in a different category. Now, for some reason, <clears throat> maybe because... He wrote to from that might not you know too much about that uh, rabbinic world, uh, so you know he wasn't so popular. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't, and the literary critics you know were not crazy over it. That's why they gave the Nobel Prize to Isaac Bashevis Singer. These other dreckheads uh, who definitely didn't deserve it, uh, and and he didn't get the credit he wanted. Now, listen to this: if you're not from and you don't believe in God, but you are a writer, especially a Yiddish writer. I mean, so what do you crave in life? I'm serious, you know. What is it that you crave in life? And the answer is, you want the fame and the recognition due to your literary abilities. Okay, I mean, I get that. It's not a sin. At least, according to Navardic, it is. But, you know, it's understandable. Uh, and he turned out these masterpieces, but he knew, because of the mega trends that I just described, that uh, he wasn't going to get the kind of um, recognition and fame that he felt he's entitled to. And his wife was like double that way, apparently. She was like super neurotic that he should get the fame and credit that his stuff entitles him to. And, and, and he did deserve the literary fame but it didn't come his way. And what makes things even funnier is he had to grow up and live in New York and what she sees all around him, the, the, you know, the general Jewish culture is, is, uh, is uh, what's the right word? Uh, very shallow and vapid. And, you know, they're former conservatives, this and the other. They're not uh, interested in anything Jewish. The only people that are interested in anything intensely Jewish is like the yeshiva types. And he knows them well, but he doesn't like them. Uh, so mind you, this is a person who, um, in the Gemara's definition, 
if if he had a kosher restaurant to walk into or a trafe one, he would definitely walk into a trafe restaurant. I mean, there's all these stories about it. You see? No, he really wanted to consider himself almost like an atheist, you see? But on the other hand, he's interested in portraying the world that was lost. Because the Holocaust obviously left that imp impact on him. And he published, like I say, a whole bunch of novels in Yiddish and usually newspaper, some of which have been translated to English. And they are really worth seeing or reading if you want to know what life was really like uh, back before the war in uh, Vilna and those kind of places. Now, uh, it's not romanticized. Uh, and he is very eager to show the good side as well as the bad side of the rabbinical world, the she world, and all the rest of it. Uh, and he does. And so uh, I wouldn't say he denies the greatness of certain famous rabbis, but he's, he also tells their faults. Uh, and I mean down to the Lashahar level. Uh, so it's been a his book has been a very famous source of Lashon Hara, which, in other words, it's the opposite of the art scroll biographies. The art scroll biography brushes everything away. He does he is the opposite of brushing things away. So, you know, if you want to get an idea of who somebody was, you got to read the art scroll book, and then you got to read Chaim Grada. Uh, and he's a brilliant uh, uh, writer. Uh, and uh, I didn't read his stuff in Yiddish, a little bit, very little, um, but I came across in English. Uh, many years ago, a friend of mine gave me a book when I was sick. This must be around 1990, whatever. I was sick in hospital. He gave me a book, Rabbis and Wives, which I thought was a piece of junk. Then I started reading. I said, what the heck is this? This guy actually knows what he's talking about. And even though the characters aren't named, the real names, you can tell, this is Chaim Meiser, and this guy's the Marqueshes, and this one's the Chazanish. You know, you can tell. And he describes the human foibles and greatnesses of them and their wives. And in general, uh, one of the things that led him and others, but especially him, towards the Yiddish literature and the secular Yiddish literature was the following sensibility, which is not incorrect. And that is the from world in which he grew up um, felt itself to be very righteous, but was lacking in Avos Yisrael. Meaning, that the Talmidei Chachamim had a tremendous bittle towards the Amaratzim. And uh, this is historically true. Uh, nobody can surpass the Litvisha in the elitism of the learned rabbinic class. After all, I'm walking down the street, I know so much. You never even heard of the stuff I know. How can I have respect for you? You're a piece of junk. You know, like that. You get it? Um, and even though theoretically they'll deny it and whatever, but uh, that's really the way it goes. And historically speaking, um, the from literature is kind of highly elitist in nature. So, for example, um, you don't find social history in Haredi biographies. Uh, you write about a famous Gadol or some big rabbi, this is even more true years ago, but everybody else is just like furniture for the story. You see? Oh, only in the 20th century did social history, in which you're interested in what the regular average Jew, even they wasn't learned had to do, was there. That, that's not a Haredi thing. But it was a Yiddish literature thing. The Yiddish literature was interested in the regular, because of the stories, was interested in the life of the regular Pasha the Jew and Pasha the Jewess, who they realized many of them were very dedicated and from and all the rest. They just weren't learned, you see? Um, and in his novels and all the rest of it, like all these Yiddish ones, they focus a lot of attention, not only in the rabbinical elite figures, the Russian Shebas and all the rest of it, all of whom appear there under different names, but also on the regular people, because his mother was of that type. She was a regular woman, not learned at all, but very fine, and like a Tzedekis, uh, who lived a very poor life, but had super from instincts, and, uh, oh my goodness. So, I forget exactly when, 
but like in the 60s or 70s, they started to uh, translate and publish in English some of his books. This uh, story of the rabbis and wives was like three stories, and one was about an ambitious rabbitson who kept pushing her husband to go for a bigger stellar and things like that. I mean, this was the, you know, anybody who knows about real life knows these things did happen, um, but he's got it with these zingers, you know, that he can portray... Uh, he can portray the human foibles and the human, uh, you know, uh, characteristics in, in quite a remarkable way. Now, uh, because of this, I happen to know that a lot of Russian Shibas used to read his thing when it came out in the, in, in the forwards because they want to see if they're in there. I mean, I happen to know this. Uh, I won't go into details. You know, you see, and this Rashi will call up that Rashi Shiba and say, do you see the newest thing? That guy is really, really so-and-so who we knew back in the old country. It's funny, okay? Now, the thing is, um, the only people who really were interested in these kind of books in an intense way were naturally the yeshiva-type guys. And they would go over to him and say, I read your book, and what was Rav Chaim Meiser really like, and so forth. And he would answer, but he'd say, did you notice how I employed the literary style in my writing, all the rest of it. Uh, we don't care about that, but we want to know, was this Rav Aaron Cutler? Was this Rav Chaim Meiser? And did this story really happen? All the rest of it. And he used to drive him crazy because he considered himself an artist, a literary artist. And he wanted people to appreciate you know, the literary style like, like a literary critic. And Shiva guys don't give a darn for any of that. They just want to be able to pick up on Lashon Hara. You know, that's how it goes. Uh, and so... Uh, he had a funny life, living in the Bronx, I think, and uh, like I say, from 48 to, to 82, excuse me, uh, and turning out these these novels, um, but never satisfied with the English translation of them, because it's true, his Yiddish is so rich, and so, I would even say yeshivish in the best sense of the word, uh, that, you know, the average translator isn't it's not capable of, of, of doing this because the people who translated stuff was like from the Jewish Publication Society and all the rest. Of it. I met a guy once who translated some of his major works, Leviant. Met him actually in Charleston at a uh, Shavuos thing I spoke at years ago, and I was actually surprised to meet him. And he's a nice guy, all the rest of it, but he wasn't what you would call knowledgeable. In uh, was no it was the farthest thing from a Talmud Chacham you in a matter, and you've got to be a Talmud Chacham in order to to, to, to understand and translate his uh, Yiddish into English. So the the only crowd that could really appreciate his stuff was the crowd that he rejected and who, and who at least formally rejected him, even though behind the scenes they were always hoping to be Makarva and bring him back to Yiddishkeit, which never happened. Senator Rabbi Salvechik tried to Labavitch a Rebbe. Tried, I think he sent a mata. Uh, these other big rabbonim, you know, tried. Everybody tried to kiss up to him and bring him back. But he was a man of principle, and his principle was, I don't believe in anything, and and nothing's going to change that. Um, he, so, he wasn't interested in joining the Haredim all the rest of it, because while he understood their strengths, he detested their weaknesses, their faults, which was intolerance narrow-mindedness, uh, superiority, just looking down on others. I mean, these things are true. <laughs> Anybody's in the sheep world or the firm world knows we're not all uh, sugar and spice. They, you know, there's plenty of room for for criticism. In fact, every firm person I know is full of criticism of the sheep world hit in his or her way. You know, they can live in Baltimore, live in Lakewood, they can live in Yerushalayim. Everybody knows what's going on in your own thing. And here's a guy on the outside who's, uh, you know, who can't, st I mean, let me put it this way, he would not be able to to read an art school biography of the Chazanish. In fact, I just listened online, because uh, they now apparently put this stuff up digitally, to a Yiddish speech he gave, in which, about the Chazanish, who he knew intimately, and talking uh, the Pe'er Ador, which is the From Biography, five volumes, and he's like ranting and raving against it because he says all the you have in the, in, in the Sefer is the Chazanish's Avasa Torah, but he had no obviously, it doesn't tell you anything about his obviously throw. It just tells you about his 
Kegnerschaft, the Chazanish's opposition to the Mizrahi and to this and that and the other. But it doesn't tell you that in real life, when it comes to relating to other Jews, he had a tremendous, obviously, throw. You see, the big Gedolim and big Tzadikim weren't like what I just talked about. The real, I'll give you an example, Chaim Meiser, he did not look down on us. Believe me, if there's anybody who has the right to look down on Maratzim, because what he knows in his mind, they they can't even fathom. Okay, they knew it's beyond beyond. They're 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 hasagas. after all, but because he was the tzaddik who he was, so in addition to being this great gon, he had what you call obviously throw, which means he really cared about the average guy in the street, the man, the woman, all the rest of it, and he did what he was able to do to help him out. Simply because he cares about them, uh, that's what you mean by obviously Israel, and it's a uh, kind of it's it, it's kind of interesting in that way, because uh, you know, I'm not sure how much we have of this today. Uh, the average from Jew like you who are listening to this, do you have? I mean, I think this is gone. Do you have an obviously Israel out there that it really, you know, feel tremendous? Um, sympathy for the, any other Jew, even if they're not from, simply because they are Jewish. I, I don't think so. I think it's more like, are you on my team, or are you on a different team? You're Orthodox, considered reform. Are you this, that, and the other? You know, we're, we're, we live in a in a world in which, you know, it's it's mine against yours. Uh, so everybody pays lip service to obviously Israel, but you know, most people, you know. You, Except for Yechidi Skula, uh, don't don't really have it. You see, again, somebody told me a story. I'm sure I must have mentioned this also, but uh, they heard from some Lubavitcher that the story goes like this: a guy standing on the George Washington Bridge is going to jump off, commit suicide, and they're saying, "Don't jump!" And he said, "No, life stinks. Life is over. I'm going to jump." And this Jewish guy comes uh, uh, to the bottom. And says, how can you do this? You know, life stinks. It's all over for me. He said, don't say that. He said, the world doesn't understand me. Don't say that. There are things in common. Look, I'm a person and you're a person. We have something in common. Uh, he said, well, that's true, but that's not enough. And then the guy said, at the bottom said like this. Listen, uh, you believe in God after life? Yes. Well, so do I. Look, that's something we have in common. Uh, by the way, he says, that means you're religious? You, you believe in a religion? Yes. Well, so do I. Uh, what religion is that anyway? Juda- Judaism? How can a Jew say life stinks and you're all alone? So do I. By the way, is it Orthodox conservative from Orthodox? Orthodox Jew? How can Orthodox Jew say that, you know, life is over and life stinks and you have no friends? By the way, what do you, uh, Orthodox Jew, or you a Chassid or Misnaga? A Chassid. A Chassid, how can a Hasidic Jew say life stinks and all the rest of it. Sure, we have a lot in common. What kind of chassid are you? Chabad. Chabad? I'm a Chabad too. How can a Chabad person, of all people, say, life stinks and it's all over, I'm going to commit suicide? By the way, which Chabad are you? You know, a group A or group B? And the guy said, group A. Jump, you shake it. <laughs> you see? In other words, we're so bifurcated, I only hold from the people in my own little, you know, shave it. Uh, the obvious role, when it's there, is like a for all Yidden is is a uh, is a big item, and uh, I'll say it again. I'm sure I'm wrong, but if I think of big rabbis all the rest of today, I don't associate them with obviously throwing the sense I'm talking about, which is the classic wide, uh, you know, uh, form. But but Chaim Grada does, okay, and he didn't like the fact that you know the Haredim. This is his words. In the speech I just heard, are going to portray the Chazanish just with Avasa Torah and opposition to Zionism and all the rest of it, but not with the obviously Israel part. Um, so uh, you know the, he had an agenda, but you're talking to the wall because you know nobody can understand you. You only talk Yiddish. Uh, you don't have anything to do with like the Frumis, who are the only group coming up. That A is interested in Yiddish and B is intensely interested in Jewish culture. It's a culture that you learn when you're young, but you're just not interested in it today. And uh, 
So you have like a, a, sort of a lonely life, it would seem to me. And he had no children. And uh, and he didn't get the fame that uh, that he so strongly wanted because he didn't get the Nobel Prize. Isaac Bashev Singer got the Nobel Prize, um, even though he did, didn't deserve it, in, in my opinion. And uh, so he had like a, a, a bitter business. See, he it would have been better for him, now I'm speaking here very superciliously, it would have been better for him to sort of repair the bridges and come back to the from world or something like that. But he couldn't do it. Matter of fact, when the war was over, he came to America, the Khazanich was still alive. He was thinking of going to Israel, but he says, if I go back, the Khazanich will give me Musr in a loving way, and he'll try to make me come a Balshuba. And, and I'll do it because I was so much in love with the Chazanish because of personality, I'll probably come from again and I don't want to. <laughs> you, you see how screwy things are? And so having been on the wrong horse repeatedly in life, having gotten on the wrong train, he lived in New York but had like, I would call like a tragic life because um, the horse to which he hitched his wagon, which is Yiddishism, uh, had no future. And the translations that came out in, in Ivrit and in uh, English, because people came to see, uh, you know, his works are of great literary merit. Uh, I don't think he proved. No, you know, if you're a perfectionist, you'll say this, the translators don't get me right. Therefore, I'm not being portrayed the way I should be. And, uh, you know, things like that bothered him. Now, uh, in English, I know, I have a few of his books, uh, especially the big one came out in the 60s uh, called The Yeshiva, two volumes, in which it's all Tzemach Atlas. It's all about this guy who wants to start a Navardic Yeshiva. The Chazanish is one of the characters under a different name. And it's about a boy named Chaikal Vilner, which is himself, Chaim from Vilna. And it's got all kind of uh, incidents there, including uh, G-rated, R-rated, X-rated, you name it. Uh, now, I'm not saying that the X-rated things didn't happen. Uh, yeshivas are yeshivas, or people are people. So, you know, these things might have happened, but it's a little hard to swallow. And, uh, but it's, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant work of literature, okay? Uh, and like I said before, you know, everybody's really somebody else. This guy turns out to be Ryan Cutler, and that guy turns out this. This one turns to be that. And I mean, he describes all the the different yeshiva guys uh, because he ha he he describes the Jews um, Kenick or something where the the place in the mountains or the forest where all the yeshivas went in the summer, like we would say today, and the Catskills, you know, back in Lithuania. And you can tell the mirrors are different than the 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 you know uh, uh, Kletskers are different than the, the you know the Lumsers and things like that. He's he, he describes details brilliantly. Uh, and in the end, I remember the Chazanish tells the young Chaim Vilna, he says, why don't you come with us to Israel? We're moving to Palestine. You know, we'll, 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 we'll get together. Um, and he and he turned them down. Um, so uh, basically, talking about a literary genius who made a whole series of mistakes throughout his life. I mean, people won't like if you say that, but, I mean, that's what it's historically. He misjudged the the Holocaust, the future of Yiddish, um, the nature of what will survive and will not survive in the post-war period. Um, he consigned to the grave the entire yeshiva culture, which which did the opposite, which had a tchis amesim, uh, and which he did not know how to relate to, uh, which, is just, which is just interesting. And, of course... If you're from Vilna, but you live in New York, so all the yeshivas here and all the from life is a cheap knockoff of what was over there. There's truth to that. But on the other hand, the American Jews have their culture and their sincerity. In some ways, the American yeshiva boys, especially at that time, you know, had a greater sincerity than was true in, in, in Europe um, sometimes. <coughs> but he couldn't appreciate any of that. Now, uh, as I said before, his um, main works were translated, but plenty are not translated. And when he died, it hadn't all been translated, and his wife wouldn't let him. 
translated the whole story with all that. And uh, she died in 2005. And now, like I say, the Yivo got it and they finally organized his papers. And according to the thing that was sent to me today, <clears throat> they put everything digitally online. And so if you're interested in a novelist or a poet in Yiddish, I mean, he's got a whole poem, a book of poems called Musernix, where he talks in Yiddish poetry about the Bali Musser, meaning the Nevartikers that he encountered all the rest of it. Now remember, the Chazanish was not at the Musser. You know, uh, he has the most r remarkable stuff. He's a Shano Pirish, which sets him apart from all the other Yiddish writers. They are so divorced from religion and all the rest of it that if you're a from person in any degree, even if you're a cultured from person, it's hard to feel any kind of connection with what these other Yiddish writers write. That's been my experience anyway. But if you read Chaim Grad, it's a completely different experience. You can feel a connection to what he wrote. The only thing is he's got his prejudice and his issues, his chip on the shoulder, so to speak, and there's no question about that. But, uh, okay, you know, okay, so what? Lomi Pivon Ochaim, but his uh, brilliant literary descriptions uh, are quite amazing. And there's one I'll just uh, talk about now, because I see in the article that uh, Professor Ruth Weiss issued a new translation, hoping to be a little more accurate. It's not still so accurate. It's a little more accurate of his famous one uh, piece he wrote, after the war, about an encounter that he had, or he claims he had, um, with an old Chavrus of his from back in the Vardic days, but a guy who stuck with Navardic and didn't go Shana Pirish versus our hero Shana Pirish. And they both meet in Paris after the Second World War, and they have a whole big argument back and forth. It's called My Quarrel with Hersher Signer, My Krieg with Hersher Signer. And Hersher Signer. Turns out to be uh, Gershon Liebman. If you know who he was, he was like a a, a Navardic or saint. Uh, you know, he, he was mamish in the Holocaust, in the concentration camps. And I forget exactly how he did it, but he learned and had a safer Torah in, in like Buchenwald and Craig, you know, uh, and they beat him up. And the minute the war was over and the liberation came, I mean, literally the day the, the Buchenwald was liberated, he started the yeshiva, and then he was a famous Balmusser in France. Started all these little yeshivas and schools in France. So notice he really fell through. That's a former Chavrus of his. And then our hero, who's a Shana Pirish, and they meet and they have all these quarrels, and each one disses the other. In other words, the from guy says to the non-from guy, what do you think of secular culture now that you see what Hitler did? And the secular guy says to the from guy, then what do you think of God now that he let all this Holocaust happen, according to you? You know, they all diss each other. And uh, it's very thoughtful, and it's very real, because, um, you know, they they both lived through the war. Okay? Now, it's literary, so, you know, it doesn't mean it's exactly the way it happened. But it, it it's a basic theme in which he defends his atheism in the teeth of the Holocaust, uh, which is an interesting take. Because nowadays people say, oh, the Holocaust kind of like um, confirms uh, Judaism. But years ago, they used to say the Holocaust contradicts Judaism and makes traditional religious Judaism unviable. And so uh, causing you to think it does and raising intellectual issues, theological issues, it does. Um, but so you can, you know, you can get the book of My Quarrel with Hirsch Signer or uh, the Yeshiva or Rabbis and Wives, or the book about his mother in Vilna, and my mother's Shabbosim. I would say there's a, a, probably a dozen or so books of his have been translated into English. But it is true. His Yiddish is so rich. His culture was so rich. Even for somebody who's shown a Pirish, but he knew and describes how the from people talked in Vilna, and all the different shtibles and things like this. And so an English rendition will never really be good enough. Uh, and therefore he must have died a bitter man. So it's just interesting when people are young and idealistic and they think that they can sort of buck the regular trend, especially the from trend, for a brave new world. And then when it's all over, turns out you, you, you like you picked the wrong horse.
picked the wrong train. Anyway, time is basically up. So I wanted to speak about those aspects. Uh, and with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.